Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. At the heart of the bustling CBD of Melbourne, Australia, is Burke Street. Bisecting the city, Burke Street runs from Spring Street in the east towards Southern Cross Station on Spencer Street and beyond Docklands in west of the city. Originally known as the home of Melbourne's historic 19th century entertainment venues, the modern-day retail hub is unique in its design. One block of the thoroughfare between Swanston and Elizabeth Street is known as Burke Street Mall. It's inaccessible to vehicles, restricted only to trams and pedestrians. Tourists and office workers scurry through the popular shopping precinct as the strains of local buskers are punctuated by the ringing bells of trams, alerting pedestrians of their presence. It's an unmistakable sound that all Melburnians are familiar with. The sound of their city, if you will. Something that people don't expect to hear in Melbourne is that of a vehicle being driven by someone intent on terrorizing the city while being pursued by police. Rubber tires skidding across the busy streets as smoke billows from the spinning wheels is an unwelcome and uncouth sound. As is the sound of a driver screaming obscenities at hordes of stunned onlookers and other motorists who were stopped in their tracks. Witnessing a dangerous spectacle... But on a mild summer's day in early 2017, these were the sounds that many in the city would come to associate with something unexpected and menacing. The cascade of events culminating in what can only be described as utter carnage led to painful questions. How safe was the Melbourne public in the course of going about their business? How could they trust that those tasks were keeping them safe, the police, could protect them in their city when it mattered. Now, let's get on with it. January 20th, 2017 was a drizzly yet temperate day in Melbourne thanks to a summer storm the night before. In the city, tourists were out taking in the sights and absorbing the electric atmosphere thanks to the Australian Open. The event is the first Grand Slam tournament on the international tennis calendar every year 
and on that day, it had already been underway for a week at Melbourne Park. Families were out with their children, squeezing the last moments of enjoyment out of the school holidays. In the early afternoon, Burke Street Mall was full of people. In addition to the crowds of holiday makers, office workers were busy leaving to go to lunch, spending their break shopping, or returning to work. It was during the middle of the day that 25-year-old Japanese student Yosuke Kano met up with friend Kashu for lunch at Chinatown in Russell Street. Yosuke grew up in Yokohama, Japan, with his parents and older brother. Following high school, Yosuke trained at the International University of Health and Welfare as an occupational therapist. He juggled his studies with being a dedicated carer for his maternal grandmother, with whom he was especially close, but also managed to find time to pursue his interest in swimming, baseball, tennis, and Japanese calligraphy. Upon graduating, Yusuke worked in the rehabilitation section of Asakura Hospital, but he had a strong interest in international medical practice. In mid-2016, he left Japan and moved to Melbourne to study English. Yusuke was a friendly and compassionate young man and established a close social circle upon his arrival. He enrolled at Kaplan International College and lived in a share apartment in the city. After finishing lunch, Yusuke and Kashu took a walk up Burke Street. That same morning, bubbly 22-year-old insurance consultant and one of six children, Jessica Moody, had flown to Melbourne from Sydney for work. Around 1.30 p.m., Jess, as she was known to friends and family, headed out for lunch with five of her colleagues to a restaurant in nearby McKillop Street. She had plans to stay overnight in Melbourne to catch up with three of her siblings who'd made the move interstate. Jess had been in her current role for almost a year and enjoyed her work. Growing up in southwest Sydney, she'd moved into a share house was known as a loving and compassionate influence on those around her. She was close to her family and her boyfriend and loved spending time with her twin sister, Emily. The pair enjoyed hanging out, watching TV together, especially home improvement shows and crime thrillers. Jess was an independent and headstrong young woman whose endearing sense of humor often saw her laughing at her own jokes. Career-wise, Jess started working as an insurance claims processor in 2011 at age 17, after completing a business course. A diligent and ambitious worker, Jess showed promise and in 2016 was promoted to insurance consultant. She also loved leisurely lunches with her girlfriends, working out, and good-naturedly ribbing her flatmates. Jess would be turning 23 the following month and she was looking forward to celebrating alongside Emily, hopefully enjoying her favorite cocktail. While Jess was heading out, 33-year-old architect and talented violinist Matthew C. was walking back to his office. He'd had lunch with his wife Melinda, and the pair parted ways on the corner of Elizabeth and Burke Street. Matthew grew up in Perth with his parents and two younger brothers. Gifted at drawing with a love for video games, the creative thinker was an excellent student and dukes of his high school. After graduating with an architecture degree from the University of Western Australia, Matthew started his career in Perth. He gained more experience in London and traveled through Europe, eventually settling in Melbourne in 2009. He and Melinda married in 2012, and several years later, the couple welcomed a baby girl 
Matthew was besotted with his 18-month-old daughter and couldn't wait to see her at the end of every workday. His kindness, happy disposition, and love for his family was something that fed through to his concern for the world around him. As well as his interest in photography and gardening, Matthew was a passionate environmentalist. Like Matthew, Bavita Patel was also 33 years old. On January 20th, Bavita went to lunch with her colleagues and was returning to the office at the corner of Burke and William Streets. The oldest of two children, Bavita grew up in Canberra, where she went on to study commerce at the Australian National University before becoming a chartered accountant. She worked at the federal government's Department of Finance before moving to Melbourne, where she worked as a director for a global professional service firm. Bavita was highly successful, and her intelligence, strong work ethic, and effervescence meant she was well on her way up to a partnership. She loved traveling and savoring international cuisine whenever she could. After Bavita and her two colleagues left the restaurant at around 1.30 p.m., they crossed the lights at Queen Street and were walking along Burke Street back to the office. Bavita was looking forward to flying to Canberra the next day to see her family. Ten-year-old primary school student, Talia Haken, her 46-year-old Natalie, and nine-year-old sister Maggie were in the city for a different reason that day. The trio were on their way to see a magic show at 2 p.m. at the RACV Club on Burke Street. Talia attended Beth Rivka College in St. Kilda East, and she was looking forward to starting fifth grade when the school year recommenced. Talia's vivaciousness, confidence, and sense of humor meant the extroverted student was friendly with a number of other students outside her own grade. She enjoyed playing tennis and participating in her local scouting group, and her favorite school subjects were arts and maths. But it was her innate kindness that endeared her to her family and friends. She was known to be protective of her younger sister. Talia's father, Tony, later said his eldest daughter was blessed with, quote, Have Azriel, a Hebrew expression meaning a love of people. Three-month-old Zachary Bryan was out for the day in the company of his 23-year-old nanny, Aaron, and two-year-old sister, Zara. Zachary's parents, Matthew and Noir, had eagerly anticipated the birth of their second child and named him early into the pregnancy. That morning, Noir and Aaron took the children to the Melbourne Museum for a playdate. Afterwards, they caught a tram back into the city. Noir left her children in the care and supervision of Arwen, who would make the short walk with the children back home. Noir went off to run errands for the afternoon, and Arwen walked along Burke Street, pushing her young charges along in their double pram. Noir later described her son as, quote, a handsome and beautiful little man with a piercing smile that would melt hearts. Only a few days before, Zachary had started to giggle, bringing much delight to his loving family. The group of innocent strangers you've just heard about were all minding their own business. Whether they were going about their workday, socializing, or enjoying the holidays, the one thing they had in common was that they were dearly loved by family, friends, and colleagues. But they were all about to be united in another way. Through the most unimaginable and horrifying circumstances, anyone could imagine. At about 1.30 p.m., a maroon Holden Commodore drove into the center of Melbourne 
After momentarily causing havoc by severely disrupting traffic at the intersection outside the iconic Flinders Street station, the motorist proceeded to drive north through the city up Swanston Street. With a cigarette hanging casually from his mouth and a blank expression on his face, the driver swerved from the tram tracks, accelerating onto the crowded footpath. Surprised pedestrians leapt out of the way of the oncoming car and ran into shop doorways to escape. As the vehicle approached the intersection of Swanston and Burke Streets, suddenly turned left, accelerating towards Burke Street Mall. Unsuspecting pedestrians walking along the footpath were mowed down as the vehicle hurtled towards them. The screams and shouts as people jumped out of the way were punctuated by the thudding sounds of the vehicle colliding with those who weren't so lucky. As the Commodore continued west along the footpath between Elizabeth and Queen Streets, it plowed into more pedestrians. Rather than slowing down, it appeared to gain speed as it continued west and headed towards the intersection of Burke Street and Queen Street. A police helicopter hovered low ahead as unmarked cars pursued the rogue driver up Burke Street. In a tactical measure, police eventually managed to ram the vehicle. The Commodore traveled a further 100 meters west before the fuel line to its engine failed, and it came to a stop. Gunshots rang out as officers discharged their firearms hitting the driver. Police also tasered him, surrounding the vehicle before dragging the driver out, forcing him to the ground, apprehending him before he could harm anyone else. But it was too late. It had taken only 55 seconds for the driver to leave a trail of destruction. Debris and bodies lay scattered along several blocks of Burke Street. Three people were dead. Many more were severely injured, and the tally would rise in the coming days. The driver's name was James Gargasoulos. Before he sped into Burke Street Mall causing pandemonium, police had already been tailing him for 12 hours. James was on bail for numerous violent offenses and ironically was due to appear in Melbourne Magistrates Court the same day. Demetrius Gargasoulos was born in Adelaide. Demetrius Gargasoulos was born in Adelaide, South Australia on January 26, 1990 to his parents, Christos and Emily. Eleven months later, a younger brother, Angelo, arrived. Demetrius was known to his family and friends as Jimmy, or more formally, James. Christos and Emily's marriage ended when James was about two years old. Emily moved in her state to Melbourne, 1,500 kilometers away, but the boys stayed with Christos, who worked as an opal miner. In 1993, Christos moved his young sons to the South Australian mining town of Cooperpedi. Christos went on to have two more children with a different woman, but James had little contact with them. Emily, too, had a daughter, and James had regular contact with his half-sister. James and Angela only saw their mother during the school holidays. As an adult, James later claimed that Christos was, quote, strict and violent with the boys, and that he physically abused the brothers nearly every day. Angela corroborated this, later describing his childhood to ABC's Four Corners program as, quote, one big massive trauma. The young boys were repeatedly beaten by Christos with whatever was at hand, including implements such as a metal bar. Both brothers attended Cooper PD Area School, where James was engaged with the school's special needs curriculum. 
He had learning difficulties, and his unusual behavior often made him stand out amongst his peers. But not for the right reasons. James was distracted easily, and said to be bullied and targeted by other students, who made his school life miserable. At age 14, James decided to do something about his tormentors. He constructed a homemade bomb using explosive from Christos's mining business. He took the device and a stick of gelonite to school, which led to him being expelled. By this time, James had started smoking marijuana with his friends, which seemed to exacerbate his cognitive issues and personality quirks. After his expulsion from school, James enrolled in a mechanics course for eight months. James' great love was cars, and he spent his spare time on that flat, dusty, and largely deserted road outside Cooper Pedy, with his friends doing donuts and burnouts. He wasn't known amongst his friends as a necessarily aggressive person, but his intense disposition saw his behavior become odd, unpredictable, and nonsensical at times. James was also extremely confident around women and didn't care if his leering and sexual aggression made them feel uncomfortable. In 2006, 16-year-old James and 15-year-old Angelo moved to Melbourne to live with their mother, hoping that the change of environment would motivate James to complete his secondary education. He enrolled in high school, but only attended for a few months before he dropped out. In 2007, the 17-year-old first appeared in the children's court on charges of dangerous driving, reckless conduct, endangering serious injury, and theft of a motor vehicle. The following year, 18-year-old James received his first criminal conviction for assault. In addition to cannabis, he was also using cocaine. James would go on to be unemployed more often than not throughout his adult life. This was interspersed with periods of casual work, doing car detailing and furniture removals. But nothing permanent. James soon met a woman with whom he would go on to have three children in quick succession. The children remained in the care of their maternal grandmother for most of their lives. In February and March 2009, James appeared before the Melbourne Magistrates Court, charged with unlawful assault, driving while disqualified, and recklessly causing injury. According to the Herald Sun newspaper, in 2010, James was involved in a fraud racket. He and some friends stole mail from residents living in the South Bank area of Melbourne. The group used to create fake identities and use these to open bank accounts. In November that same year, James again fronted the magistrate's court twice more. A conviction for a fray and reckless conduct endangering serious injury saw him sentenced to an 18-month community-based order. This was followed up by a further 12 months regarding a whopping 29 charges relating to theft, assault, recklessly causing injury criminal damage, and driving offenses. In January 2011, James was sentenced to an additional six months for charges including offensive behavior, possessing a dangerous article, theft, affray, and assaulting police. By now, James had become violent towards his intimate partners, even in public. His assaults included kicking, punching, and dragging women by the hair. James' relationship with the mother of his three children had ended, he went on to enter into a relationship with another woman with whom he had a daughter in around 2013. That same year, 23-year-old James again appeared at the magistrate's court in response to 25 charges including theft, evading, and resisting police, escaping from custody, and assault or reckless conduct causing injury. 
This time around, he received a sentence of 14 months imprisonment. In June 2014, James was back in court twice more. He was sentenced to another 18 months. The following year, he was convicted of dishonesty offenses and behaving in an indecent manner in a public place, which added another two months to his prison time. James' extensive criminal record had established him as a violent repeat offender. However, in all his dealings with police and the criminal justice system, there was nothing to suggest that any of his offending was caused or influenced by mental health issues. In January 2016, 25-year-old James and his new partner, a Sudanese refugee in her mid-20s named Akir, moved back to Cooper Pedy. James did mechanical repair jobs here and there, with his income supplemented by working for his father, repairing machinery, mining, and operating earth-moving equipment. Akir took a job as a receptionist at a local caravan park, but soon after the couple's arrival in town, James started using methamphetamines, a highly potent and addictive stimulant known as ice. His habit increased until he was said to be using up to a gram per day and was no longer able to hold down a job. Those around him noticed his demeanor change whenever he used drugs. Gone was the car-mad party boy with an easygoing confidence and cheekiness, and its place was an aggressive, volatile, and confrontational man who wouldn't back down from a fight. James was due to return to Victoria to appear at Moorabin Magistrate's Court in April to answer to charges of drug possession and driving while disqualified. But he failed to show, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. In the meantime, Akira had become pregnant, and the couple's baby was due in early 2017. But their relationship soon became abusive. James became convinced that Akira was being unfaithful and lashed out. In one incident, when she took off in a car to escape James's rage, he followed his girlfriend in another car at speed, crashing into Akira's vehicle. The incident left the expected mother hospitalized for three weeks with serious spinal injuries. In October 2016, Akira decided to move back to Melbourne, and James followed a few weeks later. He moved in with his mother Emily at her public housing apartment in Raleigh Street, Windsor, in the city's inner south, but it was far from happy families. The Sydney Morning Herald newspaper reported that James's brother Angelo had himself had his fair share of run-ins with the police. That year for offenses related to assault, damage, theft, and family violence. James and Angelo also clashed constantly, and the atmosphere was always tense. James had begun to use ice more frequently and in greater quantities. Between bouts of paranoia, he told people he'd had what he described as a, quote, spiritual experience. In late October 2016, James again assaulted Akir in another jealous outburst. James and Akir had been out driving when James stopped the vehicle near Albert Park Lake following an argument. James viciously and repeatedly punched Akira in the head and face before pushing her out of the car in the dark. Police tracked James down soon after to arrest him and bring him in for questioning. He was no longer out of control, but was at ease as he spoke with officers. He smiled throughout his interview and appeared relaxed, but gave evasive and dismissive responses that didn't make sense. Uh, she's good, man. She's good. <laughs> no, no, you didn't assault her at all? Nice. She's evil. 
How does she run? How does she get these injuries though? How does she get the, the big lump to her head that cuts to her legs and, her, and bruising to her? Man, she's good. That's all I can say. You're saying, you're saying self-inflicted to make you look better? She knows more people than me. Look who she is. James wasn't charged with assaulting Akir, but was instead free to go. Thankfully, her baby was unharmed. However, James's day-to-day behavior and bizarre ideas were still troubling. He told his sister he knew she was secretly working for the government. He also told people close to him that he had the, quote, God gene, had seen, quote, the triangle of the Illuminati. He had accused Angelo of taking his car and using it to dispose of the bodies of various drug dealers whom James knew. By November 2016, James had moved out of Emily's apartment and was said to be sleeping rough in his car. His behavior in December and into the new year spiraled so much in conjunction with heavy ice use that it showed all the hallmarks of drug-induced psychosis. This condition is also characterized by distorted perception of reality, which arises due to the effects of, or withdrawal from, drug use. An affected person can experience auditory or visual hallucinations and paranoia, with their behavior being influenced by delusional beliefs. Angelo noticed how drastically James' behavior had changed. If his brother wasn't under the influence of drugs, he was constantly talking about them. Angelo described James as, quote, erratic, unpredictable, and someone who was violent towards women. James accused Angelo and Akir of conspiring to have him murdered and often spoke about killing people. An intervention orchestrated by the family didn't seem to be a realistic plan, given James was in denial about his heavy drug use. This was evident when in November, James abducted a friend of Angelo's, operating under the belief that the friend was conspiring with the government for James to be imprisoned. This came to a head in the early hours of November 19th, when Angelo and James were driving around the suburb of St. Kilda. The pair got into an argument resulting in James stopping the car and striking Angelo in the face with a gun. Angelo jumped out of the car and ran to the rear of the taxi that was parked nearby. James chased after his brother and threw a tire iron at him. It missed Angelo but smashed the rear window of the taxi. James took off in his car. Angelo later told ABC News that when the police attended the scene, he urged them to detain his brother in the interest of public safety. Angelo was deeply concerned that next time, James' aggression wouldn't be directed towards those he knew, but strangers. Police engaged in a vehicle pursuit with James, who was driving a stolen car, but officers were forced to call it off after James drove into the wrong side of the road, directly towards oncoming traffic. He was known to the police in St. Kilda, Windsor, and Perron, as someone who baited officers into high-speed pursuits, but intentionally drove on the wrong side of the road in order to evade police. Later that afternoon, the stolen vehicle was seen stuck in traffic in St. Kilda, when police approached the vehicle on foot, James drove through a red light. He subsequently abandoned the vehicle and escaped on foot. Police initiated charges against James, including recklessly engaging in conduct, endangering death or serious injury by driving at an excessive speed on the wrong side of the road, driving carelessly, failing to stop, and damaging the taxi. One of the difficulties for law enforcement was that since 2012, the vehicle pursuit policy in Victoria required police to call off high-speed pursuits unless there was a risk to public safety. A crime had been committed, or was about to be committed, involving serious injury. 
While the police saw a dramatic reduction in the number of pursuits over the years, this also saw an increase in the number of drivers baiting police into chasing them. Victoria police addressed this by calling ahead where possible to have roads blocked off and having police helicopters monitor vehicles from the air, facilitating a later arrest. The new policy was unpopular with many officers of Victoria police, who found the restrictions unworkable and ambiguous. James's social media posts also revealed how disturbed he had become. By December 2016 and January 2017, he was making numerous nonsensical, paranoid, and homophobic statements on his Facebook page. Quote, I have the holy power to change the world, but I need you to believe in me. No homosexual shall rule the world. James's friends knew that he was openly homophobic, which only exacerbated his problematic behavior. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. James's mental health deteriorated further in early 2017. On January 14th, he texted his mother a flurry of messages about religion. He also posted a menacing message to his Facebook page. Quote, I'll take you all out. Just me. You need an army to take me. And so far, you have presented half an army. For all those who know me, know I'm a genuine, good, sexy young guy and that I've experienced days and nights I thought I'd never experience in my life since I got to Melbourne. Well, guess what? I've been blessed. Now you're fucked. Today the gods have given me wisdom and knowledge. They have awoken me. Following a report by a neighbor that the 26-year-old had threatened his mother and was wielding a knife, James was also charged with his assault on Akir back in October 2016. In addition to outstanding arrest warrants relating to 23 offenses, during his police interview at St. Kilda, James' cavalier attitude and arrogance was evident. His responses were colored by paranoid delusions that he'd been, quote, deceived by people who had told him that the police wanted to kill him. He admitted that he knew his dangerous driving posed a danger to others, explaining that he was trying to get away from the police. He also admitted to stealing a laptop and cash from a business premise in Paran in early January. By the time police completed James's remand application that evening following his interview, it was out of court hours for it to be heard. Under the Bail Act in Victoria at the time, out-of-hours applications were heard by court officials known as bail justices. 
These are volunteers from the community who are not required to have any formal legal qualifications. At James's bail hearing, police opposed bail. They expressed their strong concerns about the unacceptable risk to the community should bail be granted. As he appeared to be exhibiting signs of mental illness, but despite the fact that James had already failed to report on bail on 13 previous occasions, had an extensive criminal record, and the number of the nature of current charges against him, bail was granted by the bail justice. As far as the courts were concerned, James was only required to attend Melbourne Magistrates Court six days later, on January 20th. There was to be no form of monitoring in the interim. Police were gravely concerned that James would reoffend before his next court appearance. The detective who interviewed and charged James sent an email to senior police saying, quote, I intend on doing some work on him this week to ensure he is remanded before January 20th. Among James's bail conditions were that he comply with a curfew, not to be affected by a drug of dependence, and not drive a vehicle. Police weren't the only ones who were shocked that James had been granted bail. Angelo was aghast that the decision had been made for his brother's favor. In the days following his release on bail, James visited St. Kilda Police Station at least three times. This had nothing to do with any bail conditions. Instead, he asked to speak with the detective who had interviewed him several days prior, expressing a wish to discuss various issues related to religion. On January 17th, James warned a friend that if he was chased by police, he would keep driving and run people over in order to get away. Court documents reveal that the next day, James visited various places around the city, including a railway station, the prayer room at a university campus on Spencer Street, and the county court. At every location, James was seen behaving in an odd manner, talking to strangers while exhibiting both paranoia and grandiosity. At 4.45 p.m., he contacted the chambers of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, saying he wanted to discuss what he claimed was, quote, serious information relating to the government. At about 5.10 p.m., James visited the St. Francis Church in Lonsdale Street. He was agitated and asked to speak to the priest. James was adamant that the end of the world was coming and that this had been revealed to him by God. Even accusing the priest of being the devil, James went inside the church where an organist was playing. He stood at the pulpit pontificating about terrorists, referring to them as, quote, freedom fighters, until he was challenged by a security guard and left on his own accord. The security guard called the police, who briefly spoke to James outside. A routine check of his name didn't reveal anything outstanding, so the police took no further action and he was free to go. Meanwhile, the detective at St. Kilda again expressed his concerns to senior police about James being granted bail, but no response was forthcoming. Just before 9 p.m. on January 18th, James went to visit his mother at the apartment of her 76-year-old partner, Gavin, in Windsor. James was carrying a Bible and demanded Gavin's car keys. Threatening to gouge his eyes out if he didn't hand them over, in a strange turn of events, James then lit the Bible he was carrying and proceeded to strike Gavin in the face with the burning book. Gavin managed to knock the Bible to the floor, but James repeatedly punched the older man in the face, leaving him bleeding as well as burned. James stole Gavin's maroon Holden Commodore. Speeding away from the apartment complex before police arrived, between 9.22 to 9.43 p.m. that night, James called the triple-zero emergency number three times, 
Ranting, he told the operator he wanted to report an emergency, said there was a comet in the sky. He also referred to underground bunkers, the Egyptian pyramids, and the Illuminati. James became increasingly aggressive and irrational during each call. They're trying to kill me so my brother can rule the world after this is fucking hit. And then all the rich people will go underground and yeah, blah, blah, blah. So fucking work that out, you dumb fuck. Well, you're not dumb. You just, you need to fucking understand what the fuck is really going on. Why do you think the world is fucked up? Why do you think they're all lies and deceiving? Now, I'll be dead after this, hopefully not. Why will you be dead, James? Why? Because the comet will take me out because I have no safety. The assault on Gavin was reported to the police that evening. Despite efforts being made to locate James, including contacting one of St. Kilda's detectives who was familiar with James, police were unable to find him. The following day, January 19th, James seemed to become more agitated. Court documents revealed that, after staying at his mother's apartment the night before, he again took off in Gavin's Commodore. Those close to him had tried to make contact to get him to return the vehicle, but with no luck. At about 2.40 p.m., James refueled the vehicle at a service station in Malvern East, but drove off without paying. Five minutes later, he stole some items from the supermarket in Ashburton, in the east of the city. At 3.15 p.m., he stopped by the Ashburton Library. This was followed by a visit to the residence of his oldest three children, where their grandmother noted that James appeared to be under the influence of ice. Around 5.25 p.m., James was seen driving erratically on William Street in the city. He collided with the front bumper of another vehicle, but instead of stopping, drove off through a red light, narrowly avoiding pedestrians. In the meantime, James's girlfriend, Akir, had heard about the vehicle theft and assault on Gavin. She went to visit Emily and Angelo to ensure they were safe. Later that evening, James was clock driving through the Burnley Tunnel at South Bank, doing 116 kilometers per hour. Just before 10 p.m., he drove through the Esplanade McDonald's restaurant in St. Kilda where he purchased some takeaway. James parked the Commodore and then walked across the road to a drinking establishment called the Dog's Bar. He checked into the location on Facebook along with the comment, quote, thinking about what to do with them, lol. James tried to sit in the bar's outdoor seating area to eat, but management asked him to leave as they suspected he was under the influence of drugs. James left, and at 12.27 a.m., paid another visit to the Esplanade McDonald's, this time with Akir in tow, whom he'd picked up from Emily's apartment. As James drove away from the fast food outlet, he spun his wheels noisily, doing a burnout and screaming out the window, quote, Fuck the police. Fuck the government. A few minutes later, after driving on the wrong side of the road, James again turned up at the dog's bar, but this time he was aggressive, knocking over tables and smashing plates and glasses in the outdoor terrace area before driving off. Management contacted local police following the outburst, but much to the confusion of bar staff, officers didn't attend the scene. At one stage, police did attend the Espelonade McDonald's in response to emergency calls, but James was long gone by that stage and the report was closed. By 1.15 a.m., James and Akir arrived back at Emily's apartment. Angelo was also there, paying a visit. In the darkness, a storm was setting in across Melbourne, literally and figuratively. 
James's behavior was becoming increasingly erratic. He took an accusatory tone with his brother, interrogating him about all manner of irrational and illogical ideas. After using ice at the apartment, James again started ranting about how he believed that Angelo and Akir were planning to kill him. About an hour later, the two brothers could be seen on CCTV leaving the apartment complex. Angelo was meeting some friends who had come to pick him up, but James followed him out into the street. As the men approached the main external exit, James pulled out a kitchen knife. A terrified Angelo fled across the street, but it was wet underfoot, and he slipped and fell. James leapt onto the defenseless Angelo, stabbing him in the head, face, neck, and chest. Angelo screamed as he tried to escape, but James attacked him again, puncturing his brother's lungs. Angelo briefly lost consciousness. When he came to, James was holding him by the head and stabbing at him with the knife. The first of four emergency calls about the commotion was made at about 2.15 a.m. Police communications on the Southern Metropolitan Police Channel reported the incident as a priority one assault and requested the attendance of a police unit. However, James sped off just before they arrived on the scene. Angelo's friends rushed him to the hospital where he was placed in an induced coma and remained in intensive care for the next nine days. Other police units on the way to the scene happened upon James soon after a set of traffic lights as he was driving. They instructed him to pull over, but he ignored them. Speeding off south along Pont Road, the officers had no idea that the man at the wheel who had tried to talk to them at the previous red light was the suspect in a stabbing, so they didn't pursue the vehicle. As James drove, he dashed through numerous red lights, weaving in and out of traffic at dangerous speed, all the while yelling out the window. At 2.37 a.m., a police broadcast identified James as the relevant suspect for both the stabbing and the earlier incident at the Esplanade McDonald's. Officers were advised to keep a lookout for James and the stolen Commodore, but no officers were tasked to remain at the apartment building to arrest James in the event that he returned. Around 2.50 a.m., James arrived at a friend's apartment at the Gatwick Hotel in St. Kilda. The man noticed that James looked disheveled, fidgety, and keyed up with his clothes covered in blood. James told his friend, Someone is following me, and if I see them, I will mow them down. I'm going to do something drastic. Take everyone out. They can suffer the consequences. Watch me. You'll see me tonight on the news. The police have stopped me before, but they ain't gonna get me this time. I'll make you believe me. At around 3 a.m., police managed to call James, but still had no idea where he was. They asked him to come to St. Kilda Police Station, but James became suspicious and hung up. Around 20 minutes later, James left the hotel. Police were still trying to locate him. At 3.30 a.m., a local sergeant requested assistance from the critical incident response team, known as CERT. In Victoria, CERT is a specialized unit of police officers who are trained to respond to incidents where there is a high risk to the community, especially in situations involving armed officers. CERT provides a 24-7 response to incidents that are beyond the scope, experience, and skill level of general duty officers and don't meet the criteria of the Special Operations Group. Amongst their special arsenal are equipments and resources, including lethal weapons and tasers, which they can deploy to bring a volatile situation 
under control. The sergeant requested that Cert assist with triangulating the phone pings of James' mobile phone so he could be tracked. Triangulation is an investigative tool used to determine the location of the mobile phone handset in real time over a specific area. The sergeant also requested that Cert attend and manage the escalating situation. But on this occasion, much to the officer's frustration, Cert advised they were unable to assist. The unfolding events did not meet the threshold for what they considered a critical incident. The best they could do to try to triangulate James' movements was to keep calling him themselves. It wasn't until around 4.20 a.m. that his mobile phone pinged in several locations. The first was in St. Kilda, when James was parked on the corner of Greaves and Vale Streets. Local police made another request for CERT to attend and box the Commodore in, allowing James to be apprehended, but the request was again denied by CERT, told local police that they weren't responsible for tactical mobile vehicle intercepts. This is a complicated operational maneuver, whereby police vehicles use a tactical formation to force a moving suspect vehicle to stop. But CERT also wasn't sure whether James was armed, as he wasn't already contained by existing police cordon, they were unable to respond or arrest him. At 4.30 a.m., when James was again pinged near McDonald's in Elsternerwick, southeast of St. Kilda, local police made another request for CERT to attend and arrest him. But again, this was denied. At 5.20 a.m., James's phone pinged in the southeast suburb of Carnegie, where a cure lived. By this time, he'd sent her a foreboding Facebook message where he threatened to, quote, kill all. He wanted to come inside to see her, but she refused and threatened to call the police. James drove off. The problem with the lack of any plan on the part of law enforcement to devise or coordinate an arrest was that the situation was evolving so rapidly. James drove from suburb to suburb, crisscrossing various police divisions responsible for separate geographical areas. This not only meant that those in charge of coordinating any response kept changing, but that some police divisions had little information about James' background or the risk that he posed. This was also an added layer of confusion when it came to officers reporting and monitoring the Commodore's movements over police radio. Radio communications at the time were conducted over separate channels, depending on the area, it was impossible for every officer involved to be updated all at once via one channel. As a result, there were no centralized plan of action that allowed for dynamic element of a changing situation. With no clear leadership from the supervising officers and a highly dangerous, unpredictable, and likely psychotic offender on the loose, it was a logistical nightmare. Investigators had no information about which direction James was heading in or how fast he was going. No orders were given to coordinate searches of the ping locations in order to actively track James down. James's phone was switched off from around 5.30 a.m., so his exact movements for the next couple of hours remain unknown. But just after 8 a.m. on January 20th, a live TV news segment from the street outside Emily's apartment building was being broadcast about the stabbing and subsequent manhunt. James was still on the run, the reporter was midway through her piece when the maroon Commodore made its way into the left of the shot. It was James leaning out of the driver's window, waving a cap and yelling. He smirked at the camera and exclaimed, That's me they're looking for. 
The bewildered reporter only realized the identity of the driver once the Commodore had sped off into the rain. Sometime after 8.15 a.m., James returned to his mother's apartment, where he threatened Akira into going with him in the Commodore. Inside the car, the knife that James used to stab Angelo was next to the handbrake. For the next hour, he took Akira on a terrifying high-speed joyride through Melbourne, driving dangerously and running red lights. She was afraid for her life. Her desperate pleas for James to stop the car and let her out went unanswered. It was impossible to predict what her boyfriend would do next. Police attempted to contact James by calling Akir, but James became irate. Just after 9 a.m., police submitted two more requests for phone triangulation, but these were denied. By now, day shift had taken over and police were being briefed on a potential arrest plan. The proposal was to locate the Commodore when it was stationary, keep James under covert surveillance till an opportunity arose, and then, with the assistance of CERT, conduct as safe as an arrest as possible. Police visited Akira's residence in Carnegie, but no one was home. Just after 10 a.m., police requested the assistance of Covert Specialist Policing Unit, called the State Surveillance Unit, or SSU, which provides support for tactical resolution strategies, but no resources were said to be available. James stopped the vehicle briefly to visit a friend in the eastern suburb of Glen Iris, but soon after, he forced Akira back into the car. Police in an unmarked car finally spotted James around 11 a.m. in Windsor. The officers covertly followed the Commodore, and James was unaware of who was in the vehicle behind him. For the next 30 minutes, Officers allowed James without incident through Paran Turak, Albert Park, and South Melbourne. In the meantime, James' location was radioed to other unmarked cars for them to make their way to where the vehicles were positioned. In order to provide cover and coordinate a safe arrest, finally, CERT was deployed to move into the area in order to maintain observation and assist. Highway Patrol were also deployed to St. Kilda Road with stop sticks a vehicle immobilization tool, but these would only be used if considered necessary. But around 11.30 a.m., while driving through South Melbourne, James realized police were following him. When he stopped at a red light at an intersection in a residential area, officers indicated for him to pull over, so he did. By this stage, other unmarked vehicles had arrived on the scene. Officers approached the Commodore on foot with their firearms drawn, shouting at James to show his hands. But instead of complying with instructions, James steered the Commodore into a service lane, laughing as he waved at the other officers' vehicles to move out of the way. When James didn't show any sign of stopping, officers were forced to reverse their vehicles out of the way to avoid a collision and certain injury. Four CERT units were nearby, but none of them were close enough to immediately assist. James accelerated, tearing off north along Moray Street before turning left and heading east on the Albert Road service road. Police pursued him, but James had at least 200 meters head start. After no more than a minute, officers were quickly instructed to call off the chase given the risk to the public in accordance with the pursuit policy. James ducked and weaved the Commodore in between other vehicles, speeding through numerous red lights. Akir was petrified and wondered how it was all going to end. Her worst fears were realized when James told her, quote, I swear if they catch up to me, 
I'm going to run down everyone in the city. It was now around 11.35 a.m. The police pursuit had been called off, but it was still within protocol for certain units in the area to follow the Commodore safely. James came to a stop in traffic on the Wurundjeri Way underpass. To the west of the city, James came to a stop in traffic on the Wurundjeri Way underpass. To the west of the city, officers from the two cert vehicles attempted to block traffic with their vehicles. They approached the Commodore on foot, their firearms drawn, when Akira suddenly burst out of the passenger side door. The lights turned green and James sped off. Traveling along the Westgate Freeway towards the Westgate Bridge, headed east into the city, when officers caught up to Akira, she was arrested and taken to St. Kilda Road Police Station. Despite Akira insisting she'd been kidnapped, she wasn't interviewed about James's intentions until mid-afternoon. Police claimed they had concerns about her credibility and were unsure whether to consider her a victim or an offender. Akira later claimed she told police on the bridge of James's plan to head to the city and run people over, but none of the CERT officers could recall her conveying such vital information to them at the time. She did tell officers that James had mentioned going to see a friend in Werribee, and police drove out to see if they could find him, but to no avail. Engaging in a high-speed pursuit at this stage was still off-limits due to the existing protocols. Instead, CERT officers were instructed to, quote, maintain covert observation from a safe space. Not long after Akir was taken into custody, the Commodore was spotted in traffic at Williamstown Road in Port Melbourne, in the west of the city. At around 12 p.m., James pulled the vehicle over in the suburb of Yarraville, near a residential building site. He got out of the car and approached a contractor who was undertaking construction work. The contractor noticed that James was speaking about unusual things and that he seemed paranoid. The contractor became concerned about James' presentation and contacted police, who were still trying to locate him. Around 12.40 p.m., text message communications initiated by police began between James and detectives. When a request was sent asking James to contact the police, he responded at 12.45 p.m. by saying, I've calculated my options and yeah, it's not looking good. I either die in jail or die trying to run from the boys. I am the savior and there is a comet and I know how to save everything and everyone, but these guys are pretty good at making me look like I'm the devil. When one detective made contact with James, they spoke for half an hour, but James couldn't be persuaded to attend the police station to hand himself in. A police air wing helicopter which was dispatched to the Yarraville area located James just after 1pm, but by this time he was back in the Commodore. The chopper followed James, radioing his movements back to CERT, but James again managed to lose police pursuing him and unmarked vehicles as he weaved recklessly in and out of traffic. James sped off over the Westgate Freeway, headed for Port Melbourne. Police desperately tried to convince him via text message to pull over, but he refused. Officers in a convoy of four unmarked vehicles following James soon caught up to him again. There were no lights or sirens. Instead, police beeped their horn trying to get him to pull over. James signaled to police, but he kept driving. As James got closer to the CBD... Multiple text messages from one detective became more frequent and had an increasing sense of urgency. Quote, James, you have to call me now, bro. 
We don't have time. Don't be silly. I'll help you fix everything. You have to call me now. I'm four meters behind you. Stop. I'm telling you. You're making a big mistake. Stop, please. Stop for me. Don't do this. Meet me. Stop doing this. Stop. Driving at high speed and running red lights, James drove up to Clarendon Street in South Melbourne, past the Exhibition Center, and over to the Clarendon Street Bridge, narrowly missing pedestrians and cyclists. He continued north onto Spencer Street, then turned right into Flinders Street, driving in an easterly direction at speed along the wrong side of the tram tracks. It was now 1.28 p.m. The city was packed. I've got a member conversing with the offender in the vehicle. We're trying to get him to voluntarily, voluntarily surrender at this stage. Uh, that's the current resolution plan. We've attempted to uh, negotiate with him, but he sped off on us, so we've stopped following him. He's now north on Clarendon Street. This is a maroon uh, Holden sedan. He's down on Flinders Street, uh, up the tram tracks. And uh, at the moment, he's going to continue. He's bound on the tram tracks, wrong side of the tram tracks, by the way. And uh, just coming up, uh, he's going to be approaching Elizabeth very shortly. All units on the channel be aware this uh, vehicle's not stopping for red lights. He's bound on the tram tracks through Elizabeth Street and uh, heavy pedestrian traffic. 490 uh, stationary now outside Flinders Street Station. Uh, the super tram stop there. He's just moved off again to continue eastbound over Swanson Street now. Listener, here's where part one of our story ends for today. But be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss part two. In our next episode, you'll not only hear what happened next, but how the victims, families, survivors, Victoria Police, and the public reacted and responded to a litany of failures that would prove to be a watershed moment for both Victoria policing and the state's bail system. If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you, you can call the 24-hour National Domestic Violence Hotline on 1-800-799-7233 in the United States or your relevant emergency number. But for now, I think that just about wraps things up. Thank you for listening and keep the fire burning. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.